0: Good morning, church. It is good to see you here, all of you eventually getting here. I've learned to wait on you through, it's never been, this, it's never been different, 30 years of ministry. I come out and I think, I don't think anybody's going to be here, but you get here eventually. That's fine. Glad you're here. And I want to give some love to our choir. This is their last uh, singing for the season. They take a little break and come back even stronger. But our music ministry, our choir, has led us through so nobly, haven't they? Let's show them some love today. forget our AV department either. You can't see them. They're down deep in the bowels of this church, but they've kept us going. And thank you for being you, being here this morning. Turn with me, please, to Revelation chapter 6. I have in your bulletin, Revelation 6, the whole chapter, and then chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. I think have bitten off more than we can chew this morning. We're just going to look at chapter 6. We may read uh, some of chapter 8 just for further encouragement, but we're only going to work our way through chapter 6 this morning. We've taken a tour of the throne in chapter 4 and 5. The Spirit has taken us there. Jesus sitting on that throne, taking the, taking the uh, seven, the, the scroll sealed with seven seals, taking it from the Father who initially is sitting on the throne. An appropriate reminder on this Trinity Sunday of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit conspiring lovingly for our redemption, and, and we've, uh, we've taken a tour of it. We've learned where its power comes from. We've talked about how it gets from heaven to earth, and we've meditated on the church triumphant, the way history is going to be at the end, that God is going to win through Christ. He's going to bring victory. He's going to bring us into that victory. But as John is prone to do in the study of Revelation, he takes us up to heaven, he takes us down to earth. When we get discouraged on earth, he takes us back to heaven. We get filled up in heaven, we go back to earth. So we've been in heaven, now we go back to earth, and we're meditating on the church, not the church triumphant, but the church militant. It's going to be triumphant, but in the meantime, we're in a battle. We're in a battle against evil forces. We've tasted it especially this last couple of years. I don't have to strain to tell you it, explain to to you, to convince you of it, as I would have before what we have experienced in the last couple of years. He takes us to earth to think about the church militant, not to discourage us, but to empower us and embolden us As those who are wedded, united to Jesus Christ, I pray that's true of you. And if it is not, I pray it is by the end of this message. We begin reading in chapter 6 and verse 1 of the last book of the Bible. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, come. Now, if you're new to the Bible or new to Christianity, I want you to be aware this is going to sound really strange, but I'm going to explain it. Come, and I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come, and out came another horse, bright red. And do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with a sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place and the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks and mountains calling to the rocks and mountains fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb the day of their wrath has come, and who can stand?" Verse 1 of chapter 8, when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our God stands forever. <clears throat> When I was in college, Jackie and I and her twin sister took a trip to Europe to serve in a missionary effort, and when we finished there in Holland, we decided uh, we had a few dollars left. We thought we had enough to get over to England and take a little tour there. We didn't have enough money as it turned out, but eventually we got back, but we that's another story, but we, we made our way down uh, south of uh, into the south, southwestern part of Holland, and I guess uh, to France, and 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 uh, we were we were going to take a, a trip that would we would somehow get over to across the English Channel and get to England. The channel wasn't dug at that, that time; you could only get there by water or by plane. We couldn't afford a plane. And so they said, uh, this uh, sort of stern speaking agent there at the gate said, um, You have two choices. You can take this ferry, and uh, there are trucks and cars and cargo boxes and all kinds of things on the ferry, and there's some room in the middle of it for people. And uh, this, is, uh, this is how much that'll be it'll take seven, eight, maybe nine hours, depending on the, the, the condition of the seas but you'll get there. That was an affordable price. And then she said, here's the second way you can get there, by hovercraft. Very fast, few seats. Everybody has a seat. Uh, get there in maybe two, three, four hours. And, uh, and uh, better accommodations. The holdback is that uh, can't travel right now. The sea's up near the shore, 20 feet, uh, swales, and they're waiting before they can go out. And and then there's another drawback. Uh, Once you get out there, if the seas act up again, you have to turn around and come back, or you may capsize. But it's faster. So I weighed those. You know, there's seven, eight hours. It's a miserable journey on a cargo ship, but you're assured of getting there. Doesn't matter what the seas are like hovercraft, fast, exciting, half the time, may or may not get there. So I felt myself to be the leader of the group, and I made the only rational decision a 20-year-old male would make. I said, hovercraft. My two female companions I thought would follow my lead said, you can go on the hovercraft, we're going on the ferry. We're going to get there. The journey was rough. Oh, terrible swales, no place really to sit. We were all seasick, breathing in diesel fumes. It was horribly boring, but we made it safely. There's a reason the church is often pictured as a ship in ancient Christian art. We probably have a ship carved around here somewhere, one of our pulpits or in the chapel, I think. The church is pictured as a ship in, but never on calm seas. Whenever you see the church in Christian history, it's always on tumultuous seas. And the the image is that Christ is... The church, when we are united to Christ, he takes us into his church, his people, and he gets us to the other side, but it's not without difficulty. Jesus said, I came in John 16. He says, I came that you might have peace. Now in this world, you are going to have tribulation, but I have overcome the world. I've come that you might have peace right now, but you're going to have tribulation right now as well. And you're going to overcome the world, but it's so sure, I've described it as in the past, I have overcome the world. The question that comes to us again and again in the book of Revelation is simply this Are you united to Christ? Are you united to Christ or not? Is Christ your Lord and Savior or not? If He is, He's going to get you to the other side. There's lots of troubles in between, lots of suffering. You could even lose your life. You could lose everything that you have, as He said to these early churches. But you're going to get to the other side. And not only are you going to get to the other side, you're going to be on the winning side. You're going to be on the triumphant side. So it's worth whatever you endure in this world. Are you with him or not? Well, if you are with him, if Christ is your Lord and Savior, and if he's not, it's simply this, it's just this easy. Right now you say, Lord Jesus, take my sins away. Give me your righteousness. Become the Lord of my life. You don't have to wait for an altar call to do that. You can do that right now in the pew where you are. And then if you are with him, here is what the text calls you to do. It calls us courageously to engage in war. When we get to chapter 8, I'll do the second point, which is to confidently engage with peace. But this morning, I think we only have time courageously to engage in war. And that means that warfare, courageously engaging in war, is going to be engaging in warfare that is both physical and spiritual. But we, because we're united to Christ spiritually, and we battle with spiritual weapons, we will also be physically triumphant. That's the promise of the coming of the kingdom. Let's think about it for a moment in verses 3 through 8 with these, these images of these horses. We'll come back in a moment to white, the white horse. And by the way, these, these colors that are assigned to these horses, this is in the first century, remember? This is long before colors become pejorative references to people. This white horse is a reference to a, to a triumphant or the kind of steed that a conquering warrior would bring. And then we come to this, we'll come back to that, to red, black, and green. And these, the, the significance of these colors is explained or alluded to after each horse's name. So, so here's the image. Jesus goes to the throne. He takes that scroll, which is the completed plan of God. It describes history as it's, as it's going to be and as, as, as God has has predetermined that it would be. Jesus has begun to open it, and he's saying, okay, we're going to come through these seals, and these first several seals are enemies, and I'm going to take them down one by one by one. They're also going to take a toll on God's good earth, even against his people. The first one is the color red, the red horse. And we don't have to guess what it means. He says, come, verse 4, its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a sword. Why is it red? And we also read about it in chapter 12, verse 3. It's red because it's the color of blood. Each of these horses, these enemies of God, enemies of the people of God are also enemies of every human being who bears the image of God. Every human being does bear the image of God. And so the devil is at war against the image of God. He's not, he doesn't leave those who are unbelievers, those who are non-Christians, doesn't leave them alone either. He attacks every image bearer of God. Why? Because we we've already found it in the text. We'll see it again in chapter seven. It's because God's agenda is to redeem from every tribe and every tongue and every people and every nation those who will be saved, but he is going to assemble them as one new humanity, multicolored, so as to represent, to approximate the beauty of his image. He can't, he can't convey his image in just monochrome. His image can only be conveyed by the assemblage of every conceivable color of humanity and male and female gathered at the throne. And the devil knows that and he hates it. That's why he's constantly trying to divide us from one another for all kinds of artificial reasons. Not the least of them being by color or by socioeconomic status or where we live or the way we speak or what we do for a living or by our gender. And so the devil wars against the image of God and he turns us against each other to take one another's life. This is bloodshed. This is the act of marring or, or cutting or or, or piercing or destroying or robbing the life of another person by inflicting wounds. And, and, and what do we get caught up in doing? We try to assign blame for who's doing the killing. And so we say it's, it's white on white or it's, it's black on white or it's, it's black on black or it's, it's police against... Against African Americans, or it's African Americans police, or uh, just the broad population against the police, or it's 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 uh, one race against Asian Americans, and ultimately it doesn't matter. It only matters that the image of God is being attacked, and assigning guilt and blame. Merely to human beings is not enough. Yes, people must be held responsible, but what we have is the answer to why ultimately there is killing. It's because the devil hates the image of God. It's the devil who wants to kill and rob of life. The next horse is black. The traditional color of... of Physical deprivation that robs a human being of his or her dignity. Again, we're not less to guess what it is. I looked in verse 5, and behold, a black horse and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures say, A quart of wheat for a denarius, three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. What is this? Barley is for horses. Wheat is for human beings. This is a description of a coming famine. This is a description of hyperinflation keeping the poor from getting their food. This is a deprivation of human beings from oil and wine that will not only sustain them, but enable them to thrive. Famine. Famine. Famine is always close by you may not believe it but do you realize that though we have 300 million people in our country we only produce enough food every year to feed 200 million we have to import our food we need the food bank wonderful ministry led by one of our members down the street that provides Low-cost food for food pantries all around uh, the city. There are food deserts in our city. While you may feel the freedom to drive anywhere you want to to buy food, there are some people who don't have that kind of access even within our city. It's predicted that we have to increase our food production by 70% by 2050 to feed the increased 2.3 billion people who will be on the earth Famine is always just around the corner. You may have heard that there's a fleeting story about New South Wales this week that's uh, being, all of its food sources, all of its crops are being destroyed by a plague of mice. Famine is just around the corner and the devil delights. Delights. Yes, we can say it's by drought or we can say it's by uh, some uh, wrong, uh, by, uh, we could say it's by climate change or we can say it's by war. or we can, we, can, we can find any number of reasons for it, but ultimately that doesn't matter either. The devil's behind it. The devil wants to starve people and dehumanize them. Then there's the pale horse, a pale horse green. The color of decomposition. I can't save your breakfast for you. I'm sorry. It's what it is. This is the ugly truth of the devil's warfare against God's image. And this, we know from verse 8, is is genocidal devastation. They were given authority over a fourth of the earth, 25% of the earth's population to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth, like mice. This is already happening. It's already happened in our culture, I mean, in our, in our human history. The Justinian plagues in the sixth to eighth century killed 50% of the world's population. The Black Death in 1340 that came across Europe killed 100 million people. The Russian famine plague in uh, the early 1900s killed 60% of its population. 14th century China had a a plague that killed 50% of its people. Plagues are not so far from us anymore, are they? We can envision them. The one we are coming through is still ravaging much of the world. World War II killed 20 million people. 50 million little unborn people per year are killed. 125,000 a day. 2,000 a day in this country. Leaving us with a negative birth rate. Leaving Europe with a negative birth rate. Not enough workers to supply for baby boomers long term in their retirement in Social Security. And the devil delights. The devil delights at destroying Warring against the image of God, and he uses whatever means necessary to torture people slowly until they die. Can deprive them of education at a young age, not able to read before the third grade, and um, not exposed to enough words. Locked into cyclical poverty, subjected to to uh, violence, uh, uh, humanly trafficked. Or or, or humans being trafficked around the world. He just toys with them like a cat with a mouse, tortures them as long as possible until many die in a violent way or out of despair. Now, why is it necessary to talk about such depressing things? The Bible doesn't varnish the truth. The Bible tells us the way the world really is but never without a solution. One time not long ago someone stopped me on the street. Didn't know who she was but she said, "I listen to you and I don't like what you say. You make me feel guilty." I said, I don't think that's in my power. I said, I've tried that before. I've tried to make people feel guilty out of meanness, but um, I don't think I can do that. What do you mean by that? Well, you tell me about these problems around the city, around the world, and uh, you, you make me feel responsible for them. And that makes me feel guilty, and it, it, I just can't listen to you anymore. I said, you know, if, uh, if, if, you, if you listen carefully, here's the way I try to, and forgive me, here's the way I try to explain it, that when you recognize your sin, yes… Outside of Christ, you do feel guilty. And that's proper. And that guilt, though, should drive you to Jesus, who gives you his righteousness and and cancels all your sins and removes them as far as the east is from the west and buries them in the depths of the deepest sea. And he remembers your sin no more. So then all that is left is responding in gratitude to that grace. And the reason I point out the problems that are that are uh, that are in our our city or in our country, is so that we'll be aware of them. And we may feel conviction, but a Christian should never feel, a a Christian should only feel conviction without guilt. You can be convicted. You can say, boy, I need to do something about that. I need to pray about that. I need to put myself in God's hands and say, would you use me to show me how I'm supposed to do something about that? Maybe you need to ask forgiveness, but, but your guilt has been nailed to the cross. So what I do, I say, is I I throw out all of these needs. I just scatter them on the congregation and across the airwaves and on the internet. I scatter them because of my confidence in the Pentecostal power of the Spirit who moves in His people and says in creative ways that I could never dream, I can do something about that. I know the throne of God in heaven, and I can call down resources to do something about that. You know, I've learned that. I didn't learn that in seminary. I learned that from observing God's people. I learned it when, I, when, when, when one time a, 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 I was preaching like that, and I said, uh, you know, there, there, there's poverty in this city. There's need in this city. There are people who don't know Jesus in this city. Their neighbors need to know Jesus. I was throwing out all kinds of problems, and this really tiny woman, older woman, came up and said, I would like you to put me to work. Tell me something to do. The spirits moved me today. I, I, I don't feel guilty. I just feel responsible. Spirits moved me. What can I do? Well, I, I looked at her and I, I thought, well, I said, uh, well, you could work in the nursery. And she said, okay, I'll work in the nursery, but I want something harder than that. I thought, you haven't worked in the nursery, obviously. <laughs> But uh, she said, I'll do that, but I'll work in there. I, that's not hard enough. Then she said, uh, I said, uh, well, then you could, uh, you could uh, um, you, you're an artist. You could use your art to, to glorify God, to show the, the, the beauty of his creation. And then she said, I already do that. All right. I said, well, you, you have a lot of money. You could give money to people who go in a hard place. I already do that. I I really ran out of ideas, went through a number of things. She said they weren't hard enough or she was already doing them. So I, I sort of made a joke, forgive me for doing it, but I said, well, there's always prison ministry. And she said, now that's it. That sounds good. I said, you like prison ministry? She said, no, I'm terrified. But I want to see the spirit work. Isn't that what you said, pastor? We just put ourselves in the way. We say, here I am, use me. And, uh, and then the Spirit does things that we can't ever imagine. That, that little lady went to the women's, I called up the chaplain, he put her to work. Every week for years, she went to the prison. She repeated my sermon. She taught them to pray hymns. And then she said, I want something harder. So I said... How about Bangladesh and, uh, and evangelize the brothels? That sounds like it, she says. This woman's not naturally, naturally brave. But she put herself in the way. And the Spirit used her. That's what I mean when I point out these problems. Here's the devil warring against. He's creating violence. He's killing people. He is depriving people. And they need food. They need health care. He is... He is he, he is brutalizing the human race. I don't know what he's calling you to do. But it begins with prayer. It doesn't begin with wallowing in your guilt. Just make this point a little stronger. This is why I knew I was going to run out of time. I hadn't planned this. But the, here's, I was thinking about this, this earlier. That, that, that comment that, you just make me feel so guilty. I just can't do anything. You know, one time I was, uh, my dad and I used to, we loved riding uh, trail bikes, motorcycles. And one time we were riding along and my dad went over a, a hill and his motorcycle stalled on the other side. He was under blind spot. I couldn't see him. And instead of moving the motorcycle out of the way, he just kept trying to crank it there. Well, I came zooming up over the hill, caught air and uh, jumped and fell right on top of him. Now, I looked down at my dad' motorcycle on top of him, on top of his motorcycle. He was scraped up, bunged up, and, uh, and, and I was a little bit too, but nothing like him. And I just started crying. I was 11, 12 years old. I just started crying. Dad, I killed you. I killed you. He's standing in front of me. But uh, I, I killed I hurt you. I, I'm so sorry. I, I, was just, I was just, I couldn't control myself. My dad said, I'm alive. I'm doing okay. Uh, We've got to get these motorcycles up. No, I'm so sorry. I just kept weeping and weeping and weeping. My dad did one of the most compassionate things any father could do for a young son. He came over to my side and he kicked me right in the rear end. He said, get over it. Quit crying and help me get up this motorcycle so we can roll it out of the way. It doesn't matter who's at fault. Maybe it's the motorcycle. Maybe I should have gone in a different way. If certainly you had something to do with you, it fell right on top of me. But now's not the time to wallow in that. Let's get up the motorcycle. Let's turn it off. Let's roll it back home and get it fixed and get our wounds cared for. Now is not the time. Brothers and sisters, quit blaming each other. Quit pointing to one person or one group or one system or another and blaming each other. Quit wallowing in your guilt. Quit defending yourselves. Quit saying, it's not my fault. It's not my forefathers' fault. It's not their fault. Just acknowledge what you can. Acknowledge. If you're convicted, you say, Lord, forgive me. Lord, forgive my forefathers. But we don't have time for you to wallow anymore in blaming and guilt. We have work to do. I told this woman who talked to me, I said, Do you realize in the time that we've been talking, we could have been doing something? The passage ends with I've really run out of time to deal with it well, but it ends with a picture you have to see. It's the wrath of the Lamb. The wrath of the Lamb. There's judgment falling on those who are outside of Christ, and it comes from a Lamb who is angry. No one can capture that in art without it looking ghoulish, because it is a ghoulish picture. As one scholar has said, the little Lord Jesus asleep on the hay has been transformed into a white haired apocalyptic enemy. What makes a lamb? Wrathful, peaceful animal wrathful. Pain. Pain for one. When a when an otherwise peaceful animal, otherwise peaceful human being is in pain, they become violently defensive or even offensive. All of the all of the 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 offenses Against the image of God stored up through the millennia will eventually make the Lamb furious and he'll unleash his wrath in judgment on the earth. But there's something encouraging for you to see if Christ is your Savior and Lord. That wrath is against all of his enemies and against all of your enemies because He loves you. You ever seen an otherwise peaceful person who, when someone they love, is threatened? It's fierce. Like the case of TJ Lane, who in 19, in uh, 2012, middle of the school season, came into the cafeteria of his high school in Chardon, Ohio, and gunned down three of his fellow 17-year-olds. Football coach Frank Hall, six foot one, 350 pounds of football coach, sprang to his feet and took action. He said he's not a naturally courageous man. He said he's afraid of confrontation. He's afraid of heights. He's afraid of roller coasters and scary movies. But he said, when my kids are being threatened, I can't take it. Those kids are someone's pride and joy, so they're my pride and joy. And he couldn't stay by passively. He had to get up and take action. So, he started chasing TJ Lane down the hallway. TJ turns with his pistol and shot at the coach. The coach dives behind a drink machine and escaped the bullet. And then the TJ turned and ran into an administrative assistant who just heard the commotion, didn't know what was happening, ran right into him. He points the barrel at her, and then Frank, the coach, yelled, "No!" T.J. turned again and pointed the gun at the coach and the coach ran right at him. T.J. turns and ran out the door. The coach ran after him. The coach chased him across the school lot until he couldn't catch him. and T.J. Lane disappeared into the woods. Later when the police found T.J. Lane holding his gun, He was shaking, quivering, terrified. The police asked, why are you afraid? You have the weapon. Why are you afraid? Coach Frank was chasing me. He saw that look on Coach Frank's face. And he knew that he could shoot Coach Frank, but Coach Frank was so angry, he would probably rip him limb from limb because he had tried to hurt his babies in that school. The lamb is not a peaceful, passive animal. He is the lamb of God who's taken away the sins of the world and taken your sins away if you have put them on him. And he is angry at everything that is afflicting those made in his image. He is angry, especially at what you, what is happening to you. And so he says, don't wallow in your guilt. There's no point to it. Come join me. Let's take this city, let's take this world, the ends of the earth, for His glory. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that You would fix our eyes on the throne. Get our eyes off of ourselves. Get our eyes off of our immediate circumstances, put them on the throne and see that the end has been determined by our gracious and sovereign Savior. And then let us turn our eyes back to the world and yield ourselves to you to say, use me. Here are my loaves and fishes. I give you what I have. Use me to bring your kingdom to bear on this earth for the eternal glory of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. God's people said together, amen.